Well, please open up your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2 as we continue our study in 1 John. This is sort of a part two, I guess you could say, to our previous time in the epistle of 1 John. We covered one verse last time, and we're going to cover one verse again today. That's not necessarily a pattern that I'm striving for, uh, but I believe that this one verse is so rich as the previous that it's going to take some time to unpack, and I think it'll be very profitable for us. So we're going to be looking at 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. Follow along with me as I read the word of God. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. If there was a title for this message, I would title it, Us and Them. The general objective of this particular sermon is that those who leave the church were never truly of the church. And even more specifically, even though much damage is done by wolves who gather with the church, the sheep can be of good courage that Christ himself is protecting his flock. And even more specifically, wolves can hide among the sheep for a time. But those called by Christ remain forever. If you're taking notes, these are the three headings we're going to follow this morning. That's concerning apostasy from the church. Heading number one, apostasy from the church leaves a mark on the church. Heading number two, apostasy from the church is not to belong to the church. And thirdly, we'll be looking at apostasy from the church demonstrates the protection of and the promise to the church. As we go through these three headings, some doctrinal reflections that I would encourage you to be thinking about as we move along are these. That the nature of the new covenant and its membership is found in this verse. That there's a reality of corporate solidarity and it also has implications. Thirdly, Christ is building and protecting his church. And then we're going to end with recognizing that the doctrine of perseverance is found in this one verse as well. So having front-loaded all that information, let us now look specifically at the Word of God. Verse 19a. They went out from us. 
Again, this is under the heading, Apostasy from the Church Leaves a Mark on the Church. After reminding his congregation of the well-known, passed-on, apostolic doctrine concerning Antichrist, the Apostle John reminds them now of a detail that they also were aware of. A detail that was most likely not received by teaching, but rather by personal experience. That there were those who once walked among them, worshipped with them, even taught them in the church, who were now no longer with them. In verse 19a, it starts out with the word they. They went out from us. Well, who is the they that John is speaking of? It's not the Antichrist, who we talked about at length last week, who was to come. No, rather, John said in verse 18, So now many Antichrists have come. And John then went on to say, Because we have seen these Antichrists now coming, we know that it is the last hour. And so when verse 19 starts out by saying they, John is speaking of those many antichrists who were there even in his own day. John has been leading up to this point in his epistle where he's been discussing congregational life. If you recall, it was a burden from the very beginning to put forth the true Christ. And by putting forth the true Christ, the true gospel... And by putting forth the true gospel, the true Christian ethic. Why? Because we identified in John's day, there were those in the church who were teaching a false Christ. Who were teaching a false gospel. Who were teaching a false Christian ethic. They had no authority in the church. They were not apostles. In fact, they were contesting the apostles. Even in a cunning way, we noticed by even using the apostolic writings and twisting them to, as we will be told, to their own destruction. But also to the destruction, or I should say, to the damage or the hurt of the sheep. And John cares for his sheep, knowing that they are Christ's sheep, ultimately. And so John is laying forth the true apostolic doctrine talking about the true Christ, the true gospel, talking about walking in the light as Christ is in the light. He was setting up a contrast between love and hate. Loving your brother is expected in the new covenant. Hating your brother is evidence that you're not in the new covenant. John now is setting up a contrast, not between love and hate, but between truth and lies. And he will continue to talk about this as we continue through this pericope in 1 John, leading up to chapter 3. But there were those in the church who were teaching heretical things that were exposed John has been preparing the congregation 
showing them how they can identify these false teachers in a myriad of ways. We saw that in chapter 1. And now John is reckoning with the fact that there were those who now have departed from their company, those who have now departed from the church, that were doing those very things. And again, this was received most likely not by letter, but by experience. There were those in this congregation who knew the names of those false teachers, who they once worshipped with, who they very most likely were taught by. Consider that. The teachers in the church that were, that were so knit to you in love have now been cast out. And John is recognizing this. And to illustrate this reality, we don't need to look any further than one we brought up last week. Judas Iscariot. You may recall that we highlighted that Judas was a type of the Antichrist who was to come. He was a type, a shadow of him for various reasons, recall. We remember that he was an apostle of Christ. In other words, he was an insider. Judas was not an enemy from without. He was an enemy from within. Furthermore, he was not serving Christ, but rather serving money. And in his defection, he literally sold out Christ and was exposed as a traitor. Jesus identified him as such and referred to him as the son of perdition, the son of destruction in his high priestly prayer. We talked about how that connects with the Apostle Paul calling the Antichrist the same name. But even still, at the Last Supper, consider this, at the Last Supper, none of the other apostles suspected that it was Judas that would betray Christ. When Christ said, one of you will betray me, what did they all do? Point to Judas and say, well, of course it's him. No. What did they say? Is it I, Lord? I think that if you were to ask the congregation that John is writing to, about these false teachers who are now no longer with them, before they were cast out. Is that teacher in Christ? They most likely would have said, well, absolutely. And so when John says they went out from us, he certainly knows from experience what this was like. Could John have remembered how deep that cut him? To have one whom he thought was his brother, his fellow servant of his master, one who he ate with, walked with, prayed with, sang with, fellowshiped with, one who even had his own feet washed beside him, only finally to hear the words of Christ about Judas, that it would have been better 
if he had never been born? Matthew 26, 24. Yes, the Apostle John knew very well the turmoil, the sorrow, the confusion that arose in the congregation of his own apostles. What they would have been feeling in light of their similar experience. Those who are, are within the visible church who later leave and defect and abandon the church they leave a mark on the church, especially upon those who loved them. Now, brothers and sisters, we all love each other in Christ. In fact, this is an evidence that John is going to later say shows that you are in Christ, that you love the brothers and sisters in Christ. But there are those in the congregation that you've been providentially given the opportunity to draw closer to, to spend more time with. And those are the ones that are hurt the most when someone leaves the church. Has this happened to you? Have you ever known anyone or loved anyone in the church who eventually betrayed their confession of faith? Who under personal circumstances walked away from the church? The reasons given by such lost souls are indeed legion. If you were to ask somebody why it was that they left the church, you could get a laundry list of various reasons why those decide to leave the church One brother said, the older you get, chances are the more opportunity you will have to, have to see this come true in your own life. Where you will recognize there were those who you once worshipped with who are no longer there. And this one thing is true. It leaves a mark. And we also learn one other thing from this passage, or I should say one other thing in addition to what I'm drawing out from it, is that apostasy from the church is not new. You might be tempted to think, especially in light of the communication that we have with the world around us, how quickly we can learn about things that otherwise we wouldn't normally hear about through normal conversation or personal witness, well, the church is losing so many members because it's weak in doctrine. The church is doing something wrong because people are leaving the church. This is a, this is symptomatic of pragmatism. No. This was going on in John's day. This was going out from the this was happening from the very beginning. This happened in Judas. And it wasn't because of weak doctrine. 
it wasn't because there wasn't any accountability. We'll get to the ultimate reason why this is happening as we continue. Look with me at the next part of the verse. But they were not of us. Now we're getting to the reason why it happened and why it continues to happen. The heading is apostasy from the church is not to belong to the church. John wants to make sure that his little children, his beloved in the faith, know the real reason why these false brethren were no longer walking among them. Sure, many of them might have known the details and circumstances as to why these apostates had left, especially the false teachers. And of course, these details illustrate and support the reason. But John does not want them to miss the ultimate reality behind the reason as to why they went out. And with this in mind, John reveals a fundamental truth behind why they went out. One that strikes at the root of who these antichrists are. Or shall I say, what they are not. They have left because they are not of us. As Jude teaches, for certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. I believe Jude is speaking of the same predicament in John's congregation. This was not isolated to Ephesus, to whom I believe John is particularly writing to. This is a symptomatic problem. We talked about this proto-Gnosticism that was sweeping across the ancient world, mixing Christianity with other false religions. And listen, we could think, oh, so that's the reason. Because Gnosticism was, was, was springing up its head. There was just a, a localized threat. Now listen to what Jude says. Certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. The King James Version will say they were ordained for this condemnation. The New American Standard says they were marked out for this condemnation. Jesus says, Father, I've lost none of them except for the son of perdition so that the scriptures might be fulfilled. There's no pragmatic reason why these things are taking place. There's a theological reason why these things are taking place. They've been ordained to take place. What does John mean? Well, first off, he means that those who went out did not belong to Christ. Repeatedly in this one verse, John sets up a dichotomy. 
How many times does he say us and they? Us and they. Us and they. Five of one, six of the other in our English translations. John is showing that there is a fundamental reality here. There's an ultimate reality behind the difference between them and us. And this is where we come to the nature of the new covenant. We talked about in previous sermons the nature of the new covenant. We looked at Jeremiah 31, 31 through 33. These promises that were made long ago concerning this new covenant that we are in. This new covenant that began in the last day. The time between the first and second comings of Christ. Some of those promises included that God would put his law on the hearts of his people. That they will all know me, the Lord told the prophet. And furthermore, I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sins no more. Remember, if you look back at 1 John chapter 2, look at verse 4 in chapter 2. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. What John is saying there is that we have a promise given to us by God of what someone in the new covenant will be. It will be someone who knows the Lord. And then John says directly, whoever says I know him, but does not keep his commandments as a liar. Why is he saying that? Because Jeremiah also said that God would put his law within them and write it on their hearts. When John says they were not of us, what he's ultimately saying is they're not of the new covenant. That's why they went out. Now here's a little excursus in covenant theology. This can only be said about the new covenant. The apostles, who were all Jews, who were members of the old covenant, were all rightly in the old covenant. Even Judas could say, I'm in the covenant. Don't miss that. Because this is why the new covenant's new. This is what makes it new. It's not like the covenant that God made with the fathers of Israel. This is a new thing. And so when John says they, went, they were not of us, he certainly is saying they're not of the new covenant. And that's why they went out. But there's also this understanding of corporate solidarity. Corporate solidarity between Christ and the church. I won't refer to it at length now, but John Bunyan makes a very interesting case between Christ and the Antichrist and Christ's body and the body of Antichrist. He says the head 
of Antichrist is the devil. The head of the church is Christ. And just as the church has a body, Antichrist has a body. This is what I understand from these many Antichrists who had come in John's day. They weren't the Antichrist, but they were members of his body. But Bunyan goes further. There isn't just a head of Antichrist and a body of Antichrist. There's a spirit of Antichrist. Just as there's a body of Christ, the head of Christ, and the spirit in the body. And just as there's corporate solidarity between you and I, brothers and sisters, as we are members of Christ's body, there is also corporate solidarity between these antichrists and the antichrist, the man of lawlessness. And this is plain in scripture. I was reminded of Genesis 3 when I was considering this idea of corporate solidarity. Remember what the Lord said to the serpent when he was issuing his curse? I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. The serpent has a seed? Corporate solidarity. We must not leave the gospel out that was given to our first parents. He, that is the seed of the woman, that is Christ, shall bruise your head, crush it, and you shall bruise his heel. A momentary affliction. The seed of the woman, Christ, and his body, the seed of Satan and his body, these antichrists. This gets behind what we're learning in the book of Ephesians from Pastor Perkins when all along we hear about being in Christ. Yes, we are members of Christ's body. Remember that intriguing word of our Lord given to Saul who is still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord in the book of Acts? When he went to the high priest and asked them for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And then the Lord appeared to him on the road as he approached Damascus. And that light from heaven shone around him. And Saul fell to the ground and he heard a voice saying what? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my church? No. Although that is true. Why are you persecuting me? There is a corporate solidarity between Christ and and the church and between the antichrist and these antichrists and so when John again says but they were not of us all of this is packed in there it just keeps coming to mind remember when Jesus talks about the sheep and the goat judgment and he says for whenever you gave clothing to those who are naked 
or water to those who were thirsty. You did it unto me. And who was it that he was talking about? These little ones. My sheep. My people. You see, even that is not about the good works that we do through the Spirit to humanity at large. It is good to bless our neighbors. But Christ is talking about his sheep in that scenario. And when we help those in need in the congregation, when we have koinonia, fellowship, when we serve each other with what is needed, Christ says, you're doing it unto me. I could stay longer, and I'm sure we would all profit. We must, move, we must continue on. The last part of this verse, I called it 19C, reads thus. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. I believe that this verse demonstrates the protection of the church and the promise to the church. In other words, expulsion from the church highlights the protection of and the promise of God. What am I getting at? First off, the protection of God. How is the protection of God found in this verse? For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Here is the protection of God. One, this trial is useful and it's necessary. Christ is protecting his church. It is good that these false teachers get expelled, that these false brethren go out. It is good for the church. And if it's good, there's no reason for us to fear. This is comparable to the threshing floor analogy. Now, in the context of what I'm going to say, I acknowledge that we're talking about the coming of Christ. John the Baptist preparing the way for the coming of Christ. But John the Baptist warned to the Jewish leaders then, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. His, that is Christ's, winnowing fork is in his hand. And he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff will burn with unquenchable fire. The Lord's winnowing fork is still in his hand. Refining the church. Later, Jesus would teach parables like the wheat and the weeds. Again, in the context here... It's, again, not the church, but the world being spoken of. And it's important you get that, because there are some commentators who would say that that parable is about the church. But remember what the disciples said 
about the wheat and the weeds that are growing together. And it was the evil one who sowed the seed in the field. And the question was, should we go uproot all the weeds? And what did the Lord say? No, leave them there. Leave them there until the harvest. What is that harvest? Well, it's the judgment at the end of the age. Is Christ saying to the church, leave those false teachers, false brethren in the church until I return? No. No, he's not. Church discipline, expulsion from the church, is a function of the church. Why? To protect the church. But there is something to be gained, I think, and applied to the situation in John, even though Christ's parable is talking about the world at large. Why? Because what is applicable to the end of the age as it concerns the world is applicable to the church today. This is why Peter says, For it is time for judgment to begin with, the God, with, house, with, the, with God's household. That's where this judgment begins, in God's house. And if it, be, if it begins with us, Peter says, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? You see, what's going to happen at the end of the age is already happening in the church. Antichrists leave, but the church remains. The wheat remains, but the chaff is blown away. And this highlights the protection of God. He's the one doing this. Just as God has ordained these false teachers and false brethren to be in the congregation, he also ordains for them to be ex exposed. And sifted out of the congregation. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But this highlights not just the protection of God, but one that I think is a hidden doctrine. And I say hidden, not that it's not revealed there, but that it's revealed in the sense that through implication. This reveals the implication of a promise that God has made to the church. This, objection, this observation of John is, a part, is part and parcel to the promise made to the church that those who are in Christ, those who are of us, as John would say, will persevere. It's those who are not of us that go out. How many false teachers have gone out of churches to set up their own religions? Isn't it interesting that a lot of the cults that we know of have been started by those who used to be in a Bible-believing church? A gospel, God-fearing church? But those who remain, 
are of us. And here is the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. This is where your joy should overflow that God again is doing something in the church as it relates to you remaining in the church if you belong to him. Remember what we said at the beginning? We said that wolves can hide in the congregation for a while. But eventually, they're exposed. And if not in this life, certainly before the throne of the judgment seat of Christ, where all will be revealed. Wolves can hide among the sheep for a time, but those who are called by name, by Christ, who are truly sheep, remain forever. They remain forever. It reminds me of the previous verses that, that we talked about leading up to this part. Do not love the world. The world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. This is also a promise here in verse 19. By implication... But I want to say one thing about perseverance that I think is important. Because the doctrine of perseverance, and I trust you're here because you agree with the, the, the doctrines of the Reformation and the what is commonly referred to as Calvinism or TULIP. Well, the P in TULIP is the perseverance of the saints. But we're in danger of misunderstanding that, I think. Because perseverance oftentimes, or I should say has the temptation to be thought of as if it's something that we do. We persevere. It's by our works. It's by my devotions. It's by my prayer life. It's by my pious behavior. These are good things. Prayer life is good. But I believe that the late R.C. Sproul got it right when he says this. I believe that saints do persevere in faith and that those who have been effectually called by God and have been reborn by the power of the Holy Spirit endure to the end. However, they persevere not because they are so diligent in making use of the mercies of God. The only reason we can give why any of us continue on in the faith is because we have been preserved. So, Dr. Sproul says, I prefer the, t I prefer the term the preservation of the saints. Because the process by which we are kept in a state of grace is something that is accomplished by God. My confidence in my preservation is not in my own ability to persevere. My confidence rests in the power of Christ to sustain me with his grace and by the power of his intercession. He is going to bring us safely home. That is is the doctrine that is implicit in the last part of this verse. John is saying, 
If these antichrists were of us, they would have remained with us. Why? Because God would have preserved them. And this is no mystery. Dr. Sproul is not teaching something that is even foreign to our own confession. I would remind you of this last point. This preservation of the saints depends not upon their own free will, but upon the immutability of the decree of election, flowing from the free and unchangeable love of God the Father, upon the efficacy of the merit and intercession of Jesus Christ and union with him. Oh, brothers and sisters, it's not because of our work that we persevere, but rather we are preserved because of the election of God and because of the works of Christ who stands in our place. We began with Psalm 32 this morning. I want to end the sermon with it today. We, we prayed this in our call to worship. You are our hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Selah. Oh, Father, we thank you for this time in the epistle of John. We thank you for the truths that you have revealed. We thank you for hiding us in Christ. He is our hiding place. And we thank you, Lord, that we are preserved by your sovereign hand, by election. That before we were even born, you knew us and have called us in time and space to your son, Jesus Christ. Oh, how sweet the congregation is, Lord. Protect us from those who would seek to do us harm. But let us rest knowing that you are the one who is ultimately protecting your church and building it. And that we can trust in your hand alone. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.